Vladimir Kucharchenko is a professional translator. But when the full-scale war began, he's put a lot of time and effort and brain power in trying to understand why Russia is behaving this way, why Russia is treating Ukraine and Ukrainians in this terrible fashion. We're going to talk about Russia as a concept and how that translates into the actions of individual Russians as well as its leaders. We're going to be looking at the concept of Russia as a prisoner of nations and why, as an imperialist entity, it is spreading so much misery and aggression, not just in Ukraine, but in many of the neighbouring countries within its so-called sphere of influence. Welcome to Silicon Curtain. Please like and subscribe to help people find our fantastic speakers and do consider becoming a patron if you like the work we do. You can also buy me a coffee and, of course, support Ukrainian charities. We've got a number of videos with links to them. Vladimir, welcome to the channel. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with your experience, your personal experience of the war, before we get into, you know, the concept of Russian imperialism. How has the war affected you from the start, including, you know, your personal and professional life? Okay, I'll start maybe before the war, because this is very important part of it. Um, just two weeks before the war, I was in the United States. Uh, I was on the professional conference. And Everywhere, everywhere, everyone who heard that I'm from Ukraine, they started asking me, how oh, is the war going to start? Um, what's what's it's going to be? But to, be, to, tell, to tell it honestly, I did not believe that it was. Yeah, I was, I was denying that it's even possible. I, I was considering that it's illogical, that it's suicide mission for Russia because, because we will resist. Uh, and um, so many people would die, and uh, I, I was thinking, thinking that they are bluffing. They've been bluffing before, and I, my opinion was that they were bluffing. So I did not believe it. I uh, just uh, on on February 16, when I was uh, getting back to Ukraine, my plane was delayed because. Uh, everyone was already expecting the war, and they did not want to park planes in Ukraine uh, for uh, at night. They just were flying to Ukraine and flying back, but they do not spend their night there. That is, that's because my plane was was delayed in, uh, in and I spent the day in Germany. I was worrying how I would get to Ukraine in case if these air, air, air airlines just if they uh, if they stop flying to Ukraine, so my worry was not about the war. My worry was about getting to Ukraine <laughs> in case if if those air uh, airlines just start flying. I I did not uh, I was I was not expecting it. So and just two days before the war, my biggest worry was to pass COVID test because I was going to vacation in Emirates. I had very good year, um, uh, very good business results. And uh, we bought the trip, the, the, the most expensive trip that I could ever afford with a, 
I was planning to spend my next two weeks with, with my family. And just two days before I was go before the my flight to Emirates, the war started. I woke up at some at 4 a.m. or at 5 a.m. I heard uh, jet fighters flying, you know, they are very loud. I heard I heard explosions. I woke up, I immediately turned off computer, found this uh, speech of Putin, and I understood that the war has started. Well, the next, the next two days, I was sleeping in a in a basement of our apartment building with our with our children. I had two kids at that time. They were uh, three and six year uh, three and seven years old. Um, well, and then I spent next two weeks in a village of uh, in which my great grandmother spent uh, Second World War, the same with the same house, uh, you know, without running water, I had to cut woods to, to get myself warm. So it's very, very different, different opposite experience to five star hotel in, in, in Emirates. So, and then I went back to the city and uh, the one of the biggest shock was when Bucha massacre happened when I we, we know when uh, when people civilians were not just you know died by accident when when the war is happening and something may fall and and something may hit you just because you are there but it's just a, an accident but when it was clear that the people were intentionally executed with uh, with hand tied behind, uh, it was a huge shock for me. You know, it's, it was total uh, disintegration of reality. I remember that I could not sleep the, the next day because what I was thinking, how is how is that even possible? Why? Uh, it's 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 not like twenty first century. It looks like somewhere I don't know, Middle Ages maybe, or even earlier. Because it's absolutely uh, savage, absolutely wild. How, how it can happen, and why it it cannot be explained by the world picture that I that I that I've seen. So that's why uh, I think this traumatizing experience led me to discovering more to to um, listening to more historical podcasts, to more. Um, messages uh, and all, and also it's it's traumatizing because because you listen to the to the news all the time because one of the biggest problems even now in here in, in Kiev is that you can't stop listening to the news. I mean, in Kiev now it's much better, it's much safer, but still you always switch on the news. What's happening there in the trenches? How many? Uh, how, if our troop has advanced or not, and and many many such things that 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 keep every Ukrainian worried, even if if they live in relative safety, it's it's still a huge stress. So it, <laughs> I think this one. Yeah. And of course, you know, on the personal side, um, there's always a stream of of 
what worry, but also bad news. I mean, almost every family will now have either a family member or somebody they they know or went to school with who's either been injured uh, or killed. The impact on everybody is incredibly tangible. And of course, we all think about Ukrainian resilience and we celebrate it. Um, we perhaps don't stop and give enough thoughts to all those personal tragedies that everybody is already experiencing. And of course, it's not over yet. So it's just going to be worse when it uh, finally is. Uh, yeah. And uh, and uh, many, many, many Ukrainians lost their lives. Many children lost their parents, uh, lost their friends. For, for example, my, uh, my neighborhood, uh, my, my childhood neighbor about my age uh, volunteered into the army and uh, got killed there. So I knew him for half of my life and I know that he's, he's, he's no more. It's already traumatizing. But even for those who did not, who did not suffer physically, who, who does not have any property, house destroyed, still it's a huge stress. I know uh, even in my office, there are some people who who have not seen their families for a year. Uh, men cannot leave Ukraine, uh, but uh, women with children there can leave. So many families are separated. It's already a huge stress. I remember when the war started, uh, it was about a week or two of war when everything was unclear. I was screaming to my wife saying, just go go because who knows what might happen and she's told to me no i'm not going how how I, do i do with with two small kids it's uh, even even crossing the border would be challenged because you know when child is three years old it's it's already huge, huge problems and especially if you're stuck for days so she refused, but I then then told her, okay, if things get really bad, then you go. I don't care. Um, luckily, you know, the Russian troops were pushed out of uh, of Kiev. So so we so we just uh, we did not get separated. But some families um, really are living apart. And it's it's huge stress for for for, for people. I know my my own uh, niece, the, the daughter of my brother, is now in the United States. She's 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 moved there and uh, she's she's living in the United States. While so he is not likely to to see her in real life for for many years. Uh, before it's over, and for him, it's it's a huge stress. Yeah, I have a colleague in my office that have the same situation that they have not seen families. The the families are coming to Ukraine at summer when there is no schools, when when uh, there are vacations. They are coming to Ukraine like like it's holidays just to see to see the families. It's it's already a stress, if, even if they are okay physically, because I'm okay physically. I am. I mean, it's safe. My family is safe, and 
he, he, my business is working, everything's good, but you know, living under this feeling that something might change any second is already a heavy feeling. Yeah. And of course, you know, you describe inhabiting a sort of very European world prior to the full scale war. And we know, obviously, there was uh, a war going on uh, for eight years prior to that, mm-hmm. um, but it could seem sort of uh, relatively distant um, from, say, life in, in in Kiev. So you're living really in a, essentially a sort of European forward-looking technological world where what's happening now seemed uh, impossible. Um, and you've been on a journey trying to really understand. So you're not a professional historian. Uh, we were talking before before this. <laughs> but you have felt the compulsion to try and not just sort of tolerate or deal with what's going on, but you've been trying to understand the motivations and indeed the historical background. And as you went on this journey, what were the sort of shocks and surprises uh, you found uh, as you started to dig deeper into this phenomenon of uh, Russian imperialism that is centuries old? Well, uh, most of most, some some basic thing, things were already known to me, but there is a big difference between knowing and feeling. I mean, you you may have knowledge, but if you do not have emotional experience, that knowledge just that does not stick to you. You know that something something happens in some fifteenth century, so okay, that's just the date. It's like like. The cartoon that you that you have in your mind, but you, when you have emotional experience, it 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 changes. It feels totally different. Um, <clears throat> so I knew I knew about many facts even before that. So I know that my own family suffered a lot from 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 Soviet regime. My great grandfather was executed in nineteen. 19- 38 together with his two brothers. I knew that. I, I know that my another great grandfather was uh, uh, died in World War Second when he was in a penal battalion. Uh, and uh, I know the facts uh, about Holodomor. About Holodomor is just for the for those who do not know, it's the uh, artificially created famine. In, uh, in uh, there were actually three of them, but the biggest one was in 1933, when over 10 million Ukrainians died just died from from famine, from hunger, because the crops were taken away. So I knew all these facts, but they were not so emotional uh, before the war started. You see, this this war just has awakened all that has been happening for the for centuries for even not for decades but but for centuries uh maybe to the to to, to the point well when our civilizations started going different ways and uh it has awakened all of this it has awakened you know the pains that that, that we tried to forget but just to say honestly i was thinking okay there were there were some some events 80 years ago, so 100 years ago, but we're living in 21st century, so just let's not, you know, remember uh, the past, let 
let let let it you know rest and and nothing but it appears that we've been mistaken that the history someone this phrase is that the history is repeating it is i mean not repeating exactly as it was but the pattern is very similar to what it was uh many times before so uh, it so it just um you know i i i wanted to to know more details to what to what to what i already to what i already knew so it's uh, it's not that i was totally ignorant i was just you know kind of impartial about it that's yeah i know it was but i have you know my life i have my family i have my business so okay just i have this knowledge but it's but but, but that's excuse me but, but that's not something that was that was shaping my life but now it has it's shaping much more of my life than it was before well, one of the examples is that even in my family before the war we were speaking russian that's 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 we were in my family we were speaking russian but after the war started we switched to ukrainians to ukrainian and i every time i i kind uh, uh, i'm i'm speaking to people i I speak in Ukrainian. I'm trying to speak Ukrainian all the time. I try, you know, it's a kind of it becomes even a kind of of uh, competitions because previously I was just switching to the language of my uh, uh, of the other person because it eases the communication. Now I insist on speaking Ukrainian. That then the, then the person that then that person switches to Ukrainian. It uh, and many other things has changed because of that so uh, and yes there are some speaking about the history some facts that i did did not know it was fascinating to discover more because um in my childhood in my in school and uh, throughout my life uh, you know we ukrainians had such such a feeling um uh, that that we are a smaller nation that we that we are living in the in the shade of Russia. That we are just something that that is not uh, uh, that that is not that significant as Russia is. But if we check, but but if we if if we check if we check uh, uh, the history, we discover that that it's it's been just the opposite. Three three hundred years. It was the opposite. Ukraine or Rus, that was the ancient name of Ukraine, was way ahead before it was uh, uh, before it was uh, conquered or assimilated by by by, by Moscovia by by Russia. This it, it's so uh, so surprising for me to hear that that it's that. The first university of Russia was founded by Ukrainians. That uh, um, ma ma many Russian poets, many Russian uh, uh, artists were Ukrainians by by their origin, but they were assimilated, and many of them just forgot their 
their past. So it's it gives more understanding of the historical context. And we've we've covered this quite a bit on the channel, but of mm-hmm. course, you know, it was a a tough choice for Ukrainians either to stay and develop mm. uh, a national cultural identity, mm. which was always under pressure. Um, and of course, Taras Shevchenko shows that route. And then, you know, an, a, an equally talented uh, sort of genius of a writer chose the more imperial route, uh, Nikolai Gogol. But nonetheless, you know, he helped to define uh, Russian literature. He helped to define an entire sort of world and genre and psychology that then permeated the whole of Russian literature. So, you know, Ukraine uh, and Ukrainians are right there, Um, not just the founding myth of the Russian state, but uh, many of these cultural outputs that it is so, you know, intensely uh, proud of. And indeed, as we've seen recently, uh, you know, Russia uh, will weaponize its culture as well, this concept of a an imperial uh, culture. Um, and what were the sort of sources you went to? Because um, there's now a lot of material uh, around. Uh, academics have become far more activist, I would say. Not fully, but there's a lot more you know, discussion, a lot more materials on social media, certainly, whereas academics might have been a little more reticent before. But what sort of materials did you turn to as part of this uh, exploration? Uh, uh, I um, I listened to YouTube podcast of historians, uh, of Ukrainian historians. And uh, I was mostly, m- mostly uh, getting the information from there. Of course, then I was, uh, I, when I heard about some fact, I was Googling, I was checking, I was just, I, I, for me, it's important um, not just to broadcast what I like to believe, but to find the facts that that prove that prove this point. Because you know, I want to, as I told before, I want to build my picture of reality, of everything, and I cannot build it without solid facts. So that's why uh, I was, of course, uh, checking uh, the different sources if if this. If, if, if these facts that I see on the video are, are correct. And sometimes just for writing, I needed to, to Google things because uh, I do not remember all the dates, to be honest. Uh, and uh, every time when I say that, for example, the dictionary of, of Russian, of Ukrainian language was, uh, was released 169 years before the first dictionary of Russian language, I have to Google those days because, because I do not remember, because I I I, I do not remember uh, them. So, um, so most of the uh, of the sources are on on the on the internet. And I'm also living in in Kiev, which is the the ancient city, uh, and uh, I know some things because i've been myself even when i was at school i was at the at, i was attending the grave of yuri dolharuki the founder of moscow he's buried here in kiev so i know something something is that i know from childhood something that i discover now but mostly it's it's uh, it's youtube because uh, because i can this kind of information that i can listen to when i'm cycling 
to, to my office and back uh, when I do not have spent some extra time on it. So, uh, yeah, that's that's it. Very similar to how I do it, because uh, as we we're mm -hmm. discussing earlier, you know, I've got uh, uh, a full uh, day job as well. And <laughs> yet to keep the sort of questions fresh and, and, and accurate and, and top up mm -hmm. that knowledge, um, there's a lot of good stuff. Yeah, as you say, on YouTube and podcasts. And I I have that running in the background when I'm mm -hmm. uh, when I'm working. Um one of the fascinating posts you put, and I know there are many memes going around where it shows, you know, Ukrainian cathedrals and it shows Moscow in the same period as essentially uh, mm. woodland. And and that's, you know, that that's amusing, but perhaps the, the, it has limited informational value. The post you made that I found fascinating was actually a list of the largest cities by population in the year 1100. And that really, uh, you know, that really struck me uh, incredibly forcefully because you've got Constantinople, as you'd expect, in top position, 300,000, which is a massive population, um, smaller, I guess, than Rome would have been you know, at the height uh, of its power. But nonetheless, for the period of 1100, that's huge. Then you've got Palermo, Thessaloniki. Um, then you've got Kiev. Kiev is above Genoa, it's above Paris, it's above Rouen, Cologne. London is tiny compared to that. London is around a tenth of the size of Kiev in the year 1100. And that really puts it, I think, in some kind of extraordinary context. Now, when you look at these sort of facts there, does it then also then start to build up a picture of how Muscovy works? not only is it acquiring territory there's a mechanism isn't there where it erases memory erases the history uh, of peoples and somehow it seems to have very effectively uh erased for a number of centuries this memory of uh kiev as a center of civilization yeah it's any it, uh, it appropriates the culture this is the thing that that surprises me you know they they do not learn the tribes that lived on Moscow area before before Kiev rulers came there. They, they as if they they do not even try to get to to retain some link to to those indigenous tribes that lived there, as if they are shamed. I mean, there is no shame in in. in in your ancestors, whoever they were, if they were cannibals somewhere on some island, that's just that's how the people lived. That's okay. We we descend from the cannibals. It's okay to say so because if it was true, but they sort of but but they want to to um, be the descendant of something great of something that is bigger than than they were, and they they were calling themselves third rome third rome you know kiev was never called him, themselves second something it's, it's kiev and it's kiev it's it's ever but but they wanted to be third rome like from rome real rome constantinople and when constantinople fell then okay now it's our turn we are the third rome that was their idea why don't you want to be the first moscow why <laughs> Is first Moscow, Moscow, just it's as it is. But for some reason, they they want to 
appropriate the culture and history of others. They uh, they uh, uh, say they started in, in as a Rus. You know the, the 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 very name of their country, Russia. It's even that is stolen. This is how Byzantium Emperor was calling uh, ancient Ukraine in the 10th century. It, it's it's Greek spelling, Russia. It's Greek spelling of Rus. So, but but they they took even the, this name because 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 they were called Moscovia before that, and is that name they so they took this name, and then they saying oh we've been one thousand or eleven hundred years old or twelve hundred years old by, but in reality if you start from the point where Moscow is it's like eight hundred and fifty. But they want to, to be longer. They, they do not even put it in a way that we were decolonized by Kiev, but now we are fighting back. No, they, they are saying we were Kiev. That's, that's the difference. They, they do not orig- start their own history. They are taking our history. And... Um, they, they, they are taking our history and say it is theirs. And it's, 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 they are doing it with other nations too. They have one of republics called Dagestan. And in Dagestan, they have cities which are 5,000 years old, very ancient ones, much more ancient than, than, than here, than in most of Europe. But they are bringing culture there while the question is who had more culture <laughs> sometime before so this this is their their way they they erase they erase um identities because the whole nation if you take a look at the at the map of russia uh, most of it is not even slavic it's Tur- most of russia is turkic nations Asiatic uh, as well, Asiatic. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and the the uh, the northern part of Russia is Finnic nations. Uh, they've been assimilated, but before that, the Finnic tribes lived there, not Slavic. So, uh, and uh, there are Caucasian nations like Chechnya, Dagestan, uh, and 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 so on. There are so there are so many different cultures that they are totally different, but. Russia trying to erase them. Not every Tatar is now speaking Tatar language. Not every Buryat can speak Buryat language because they are forgetting. It's uh, they they are making those languages are of low status that the youth does not learn it. Even in, with Ukrainian, it was the case in my childhood years and in my student years. Ukrainian was considered a low prestige language. It's like if you're speaking Ukrainian, ah, you are from village somewhere, from 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 some remote village that does not speak, still does not speak Russian. Okay, understand. And so people were switching to Russia, Russian. And th- this is why by, you mentioned Gogol, uh, you mentioned Shevchenko. By the way, Shevchenko also has some of his works in Russian, and he was living in Saint, Saint Petersburg, uh, and he and he. I was uh, part of some 
Saint, Saint Petersburg uh, um, uh, cultural society, but somehow he's just his immu immunity was strong enough to stay Ukrainian. But not every person has it. You like every everyone is searching if you are talented, if you searching for for some opportunities for some career, uh, and. Uh, in Ukraine, there are no universities and the language is suppressed. You are likely to move to Russia and become a Russian poet, scientist, whatever it can be. So, and there no are many cases, and... aren't they? I mean, one of the episodes I'm hoping to do uh, is on Karolyov, the genius behind the uh, Soviet space program, who, of course, turns out is. Uh, uh, is is Ukrainian by by birth and by uh, by training. Um, you know, we you know it's difficult to know how much uh, of that Ukrainian identity he acutely felt, or whether it's supplanted by a, a sort of Soviet identity. I guess it's complicated, mm -hmm. but um, that's an extraordinary process, isn't it? Not perhaps unfamiliar from many other empires in history. You know it. If you wanted to get on in the British Empire, you you would have had to speak uh, English. You would have had to adopt the dress, the manners, uh, and the customs uh, of your imperial masters if you want to form part of, say, the administrative uh, class. Um, but where Russia, I think, is unique is it also attempts to erase consciously uh, in in a short space of time, uh, the cultures uh, that it finds. I mean, one of the things I, I found when traveling around Russia, going to different towns uh, like Novgorod, was how little actually remains of their uh, historic foundings. Um, I mean, possibly because a lot of the architecture was made of wood, and wood doesn't uh, doesn't preserve. Uh, but I also, you know, got the sense there was a conscious effort to erase the past and that's nowhere truer is it than than in say crimea where what russia would do in ukraine is when a town is sort of uh, you know conquered it would create the foundation date from the point where it was conquered as if it had no prior history and that's very much the story of of of, of russia in ukraine isn't it it claims that almost all of ukrainian civilization started by Russia, and it kind of ignores everything that came prior to that. Yeah, you know, they, they, they when they say you, uh, Crimea was always Russian, I say, okay, scientifically, always means 13.8 billion years. But I guess you're, <laughs> you're always starts when you, when you get there. Because you know, Ru Russia uh, conquered Crimea with help of Ukrainians, by the way. So many of troops that, that took Crimea were Ukrainians, uh, since we've become the part of Russia already. And uh, at, when, when Russia took it in, in the in 19th century, it was populated by Crimean Tatar. There was not a single, maybe just several Russians there, but it was totally a different ethnicity. Then it got first um, first mixed, but then in 1944, all Tatars were removed from from their from from their land, and now they are saying, "Oh, now it's now it's it's Russian land." 
because we're here. The same, by the way, in Donbass. Uh, in Holodomor times, they, uh, they starved Ukrainians and they, they, then they moved Russians in. What they are doing now in Mariupol, uh, in Mariupol, the cities that they bombed, that, that estimated about, about 80,000 people uh, uh, died during those bombings, huge, huge number. And now they are bringing uh, people from, from Russia to live there, to, re to replace the population, to replace their ethnic identity. And you mentioned Novgorod, by the way. The thing is that Novgorod was the, one of the first first, uh, first uh, victims of Moscovia because Novgorod was it was uh, a, a separate. If it survived till till now, it would be a separate static ethnic uh, Slavic ethnicity because they the, the, the findings the the, the um, the writings of Novgorod that were found, uh, they show that they were different, they had different language from Kiev, from Moscow. Uh, they had, it was a unique state, but but in 15th century, Moscovia came and they killed 90% of populations there. So, and, and now they say it was always theirs. Uh, and and they say that Novgorod was Russia. It was always Russia, but in reality, Novgorod wanted to uh, to join Lithuania, Lithuanian um, um, uh, Grand Duchy of uh, Lithuania. But uh, Moscovia was against it, so it just completely deleted Novgorod. And it's it's been the same practice for for centuries. It's not like you know. Whatever happens in the past, it's in the past. But no, for Russia, it's not in the past. It was 50, uh, 500 years ago, and it's now. Now they are taking children from Ukraine to educate them as Russians. I I can remember similar thing was, was done by Ottoman Empire. You know, they were taking uh, captives. Uh, girls were used for some sort of Okay, for 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 sexual entertainment or as workers, and boys were taken as were educated as janissary, but maybe four hundred years it was normal practice. Everyone was doing more or less brutal things, but now in twenty first century they are doing the same. Still, they are still doing it as if it is uh, Middle Ages around. And that's that's there's two techniques, aren't there, at play here? So well, we've got the the third one, which is the erasure of identities. But the two powerful imperial mechanisms: one is divide and rule, isn't it? It's uh, one is uh, you know picking your opponent and choosing a side, fighting with them until they want you know they they erase your other enemy, and then they'll switch sides and they'll pick somebody else and then so this divide and rule mechanism um it requires time often and patience, but inexorably it seems to weaken and wear down opponents. The second one is to then erase uh, or overlay the identities of, as you say, the people that are conquered and then use those conquered people to go on and conquer the next territory. And again, it sounds 
so horrific, but it's an imperial mechanic that's worked, you know, throughout uh, throughout history. Romans very much uh, did 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 the same uh, to an extent. But here we see it in the 21st century taking place. Um, and I think it'd be interesting to hear your view on this. And we're only now starting to really comprehend that this is what Russia has done in Chechnya, because we've got a whole generation of people now brought up after Russia reconquered Chechnya or imposed a puppet dictator on that country. And we can see now that Chechens are being used to try and conquer Ukraine. So you've got that entire mechanic visible in our lifetimes. Um, when you became aware of that, I mean, how deeply shocking is that uh, to see that uh, historic process in, in action? Um, it's, it's uh, for, for us, it's uh, painful to see even a closer period of time because the Donetsk and Luhansk, they are Ukrainian cities. Uh, once they took once they took those territory in 2014 and Crimea included, they started brainwashing people. Some people, some people moved to Ukraine. Those who who are very loyal to Ukraine and thus want to stay in Ukraine, they moved to 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 governmental controlled territory. Uh, the others who like Russia or just most of people do not like anyone. They just want to live in the place. So, and they got brainwashed. And what we get, ne get got next, that they were thrown against Ukrainian army as, as cheap infantry, you know, because since they are, they are not completely Russian, but they are not already, but they already thought to hate Ukraine. They just uh, throw them on on on, on Ukrainians as a ch as cheap infantry, uh, so that the, the, the as a, the first stage of of attack. Then they they the, 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 their job is to be killed, and then the main forces of Russia attack better. So this is this is what we are seeing here in Ukraine, and when someone says us about peace negotiations that that okay let's stop killing let's stop let's stay where where you are it's totally unacceptable because we understand that exactly this would happen with the people from Kherson from Zaporizhia Kherson uh, Kherson and Zaporizhia oblasts they they will they will uh kill those who resist and they will take those who do not resist they they will put them in their army and will use them again in in, in their next war against us that's why it's unacceptable this is this is uh, you know many people in the west they do not understand why don't we just you know negotiate and start living in peace we, if that was possible that might be an option, but we understand that it's not possible. We understand that we would just agree to give these people to them, though they will use these people against us, and and it they can bite us by pieces. You know, first this part, then this, that part, and then and then then can get uh, us completely. So 
So, so, so this, this is why Ukrainians, uh, most of Ukrainians, Ukrainians, even the polls show that we do not want to make peace with them until our land is liberated, just because we understand that this is the only way to ensure peace as such. Any meeting in the middle is just giving them a break uh, so they will come with the new forks. This is this is what, what we understand. But many people around the world, they think and they, they have sort of simplified thinking. They think, okay, why are you fighting? Just stop, stop fighting. Everyone will live in peace and that's it. But you know, we had agreement with them in 2014. And uh, you see how it how it came out, and uh, and it's not uh, something that is unique in their history. You know, if you remember twenty, uh, if you remember twentieth century, it's you, you, there was Ukraine got independence, then they they divided Ukraine with Poland, then they divided Poland with Germany, then they divided Germany. Uh, with United States and United Kingdom. And then they were thinking about, you know, fighting the, the West, United States and, Ukraine, and United Kingdom. They, they, they never first, they, they always, they use the side and then they, then they take them. By the way, the first, the first, um, uh, the, the, the first alliance of, Ukrainians and and uh, Moscovia was against Poland because Ukrainians were fighting for the independence from Poland and they needed allies and they found Moscovia they had sort of agreement with them and uh, how it ended uh, Moscovia conspired with Poland <laughs> and divided Ukraine. so so they are totally unreliable they may use you as a as a as a tool for for the for the time being, but the next day they can stab you in the back, and that's that's you know, the the normal practice. I see that this is the tradition, this is the culture. Of course, no one is perfect, but 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 somehow Russia keeps less agreements, much less agreements than the others. It's historically, statistically, if you check check the facts. How many agreements were broken? In case of Soviet Union, Russia, it's, it would be close to 100%. In case of some European countries, it would be not 100. It, it would be some, some, I did not study this, but in European, in Western European culture, agreement matters. As a, as a, this is culture of agreements. It sometimes it matters more than personality. Uh, but in Russia, it's just a tool. If it works for you, then you sign the agreement. If you do not like it anymore, ah, you just throw it. And and it's not it. it's not random. It's not genetic. It's a strategy, isn't it? Uh, it's a strategy to divide and conquer, and as you say, only use agreements where it's contingent. Therefore, how frustrating is it when you see? Um, Sometimes Western media, sometimes politicians, sometimes it's useful assets and agents of Russia. But talking about, well, look at you no know, Minsk agreements. Well, let's go back to that, or you know, 
well, both sides broke that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, ignoring the mechanic. I mean, the architect of the mince agreements or the the, the one who, who suggested them, Vlaslav Sorkov, um, you know, he's on record as saying that they were never intended to uh, uh, to actually um, abide by those agreements. Uh, he has he's laid out very clearly what the strategic mechanic was, and that is to get Western pressure off, stop full scale sanctions, uh, muddy the waters, uh, create this impression of a sort of hybrid war. Everybody's bad, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. How frustrating is it for you? that despite eight years of evidence that that is what has been going on, so many people still seem to fall for that. And then you have people like the Pope and others, um, you know, talking about the great Russian culture, uh, the great Russian imperial culture. Um, it must be incredibly frustrating. Uh, yeah, yes. And we are, I personally always try to understand if is it intentional or it or is it that the, the, the people just do not understand or do not know something because if they if they do not know then um, then we need to explain uh, my my post that, that i'm posting uh they the, the main intention uh, that i have is to explain to the western audience that how it works what what gears are uh, are running in the background uh, because you know people are making um, this um, mistake you know when uh, it's called uh, att uh, 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 attributive projections when you think about the other person you would think that how would i behave if i was him so if it's totally out of your scope, you cannot even uh, predict uh, the, the, the action because you would not, you would never do it yourself. So this is the problem that may, many Western, actually everyone is doing, uh, doing these mistakes, Russians included. Uh, but uh, the, the problem, uh, if, it's, if it's not the agent, if it just how, uh, if they just misled or misunderstand, this is that, uh, that that I need to explain to them, and I sometimes, you know, when um, when the war started, when I saw such messages, I was, you know, losing my temper. I was banned in LinkedIn several times. Then I decided that okay, just take it easy and uh, write it in a manner that you do not get banned. So it's sometimes it's hard to to hold emotions, you know, when you have. When you see a six-year-old girl in a coffin, and then someone tells, "Let's negotiate. Let's talk with Putin. He might be not so bad." Then you just explode because because you cannot put these things together. It's it's totally in, inhuman that, that that I see. So uh, and that's why. That, that that that's why Ukrainians are making those demonstrations. That's some as as you were told before this recording that, that they organize some events. They some like like me. We are posting something, explaining something, but because uh, because uh, for 
Some people do not understand. Some people do not have enough emotional uh, experience of it. Because when you know that there is some fighting, but you do not have this feeling of human suffering there, then it's it's it does not impress so 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 much. So we are bringing uh, so we are bringing this uh, uh, both the facts and the feeling to the to the Western audience to make them understand. This is this is what we can do to those who just does does not understand, does not have enough information, or uh, is uh, um, influenced by by Russia controlled media or agents. As for those who intentionally work for Russia, well, for them, well, what we can do, we can, we can, we can only disclose the, uh, their connections and uh, explain that, that what kind of evil is this. Because, because many people do not understand that this is not just the war for, for the territory for the of Ukrainians it's it's the war of two ideologies it's two, two, two ways of living completely completely different because the Western world live in individualistic society when you as a person should be respected your opinion matters when you have um, uh, opportunities uh, you you if you do not like your your government you may elect the other one that's that's the the reality western world living but in russia and further to the east china they are living in like we, we all follow our leader we do not question they do not have real elections it's russia does not have real election at all it's it's all just written down and uh, and that, but then they make this cargo cargo elections to make the world that, that there, there is an election. So the, in the, these are two different ways of living, and we do not want to go there. And uh, the, uh, if if they win in Ukraine, they then they win can win in other countries, and then the whole world may change. This is. Many people do, do what many people do not understand, and we are trying to to explain. Yes, sometimes it gets frustrating when when we get you know experts with the name saying nonsense. Some and, even Western politicians, because you know it, it, and it feels not only frustrating. You you understand that if someone, some politician on the West saying that we should agree with Putin, I understand that it's direct threat to my life. To the life of my family, I understand that if Russia takes over, I'm not sure that I will left <laughs> left alive or or free, because I know the story of my ancestors, and uh, I think, and I see it's repeating. I think the story with me might repeat, so that's why we're trying to tell, we're trying to scream for those who do not, do not understand. And you're clearly having an impact. I mean, that would be one of the reasons why uh, you'd be at risk because your um, your campaign to educate people to provide uh, insight and information is obviously having an impact. Now, you've said obviously you're going to get people on on LinkedIn and other platforms who uh, either meet your posts with incomprehension or 
there can be a lot of irritating, ill-informed comments. There's a lot of trolls as well. But do you think on balance um, your activities are having a positive uh, sort of educational impact? And do you get a sense of that? Uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm trying to do this. Like, like many Ukrainians, uh, um, the, everyone tries to put something into this into this uh, fight because you know as i am uh, um, of you know of uh, i'm i'm 44 so technically i fit to serve uh, but i'm not in the trenches and uh, since i'm not you know fighting with a gun then uh, then what's other use i might be for the for the country and I think it's uh, uh, and apart, uh, so, so, so I cannot stay completely useless. I feel I need to do something, and this is this is what I uh, I'm doing. Apart from from donating, apart from uh, from you know working and paying taxes, uh, still still I I think that if I can do something, can do this little. I I should do it. At, at least I will tell to myself that I've been trying. I I've not I've not been uh, just sitting and living normal life, like uh, not caring for anything because I I care. And uh, when when the war is over, I know I will I will meet someone who was actually fighting. It, I understand that I will look in his eyes and I will have to tell something that I was doing, not just sitting while he was risking his life. So that's why that's why I'm doing my work. I think it's incredibly important, and I I think it's uh, it's very worthwhile. The informational war is one that Russia sinks vast amounts of money and resources into. So the fact that you're countering it. Uh, and, uh, you know, pushing back on the informational front, I think, is incredibly important. And I'm really glad you could share your insights and experiences with us today. Um, I think this uh, this this is uh, a very important sort of message. It's very important to understand that this isn't just a war of politicians and generals. This is something that, uh, that, that everybody is engaged with, and Ukrainian victory uh, will be achieved by everybody pushing uh, in the same direction. Volodymyr, thank you so much for your time today. Good luck with your activities and strength with your campaign. Thank you so, thank you so much for, for inviting me. That's been a pleasure. Hope to meet you again, maybe in real life sometime. <laughs>